Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place Right Crime, and I'm your host, Frank Zaffaro, and this is our feature episode for November with our guest, John Shepard. Uh, now, John has had a career in uh, film and television in addition to his crime fiction, and I think you're going to find some of his stories very amusing. Initially, I had him on for an open and shut episode, and he just had so much fun stuff to talk about uh, that it would have been impossible to pare it down to anything other than a feature episode. So here we are. Uh, we'll talk to John in just a minute, but uh, first I want to tell you that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down Out Books, and here from Down Out Books to tell you about some new releases is Lance Wright. Hey Frank, this is Lance from Down and Out Books. We start the month with the first in a new series by Jonathan Brown titled The Big Crescendo, which introduces black Canadian rock drummer and sometime private eye Lou Crasher, who is chasing his dream in present day Los Angeles. And we have another new series starting this month, Widow's Peak by Tina Wolf, featuring Diamond, one name for a woman with one purpose. The series tagline, murder is filthy business. Good thing Diamond plays dirty. For suspense thriller fans, there's The Dead Don't Sleep by Stephen Max Russo. Three Vietnam War veterans learn their former commander is living in Maine, a man they believe betrayed one of the team, and they are determined to exact their own kind of justice. There are lots more new titles on the bookshelf this month, so I encourage interested readers to visit downandoutbooks.com to learn more about them. Thanks for having me, Frank, and we'll catch up again next month with another list of new titles. Well, thank you, Lance. Uh, some great books there to consider, folks. And uh, I have to tell you that being part of the uh, Down and Out Book Stable is, uh, I'm pretty proud of that. There's some tremendous authors uh, and a great backlist to wade through. I'm, I'm going through a number of them myself right now. And well worth, uh, they are well worth your time. Uh, now, let's uh, dive right into our interview with John Shepard. Well, hey, John, welcome to the show. Yeah, well, thanks, Frank. So you and I first met at uh, VoucherCon in uh, St. Petersburg last year. That's right. It was a bunch of down-and-out authors kind of crowded around, hanging around, and we uh, and out on the deck of that old hotel. And it was cool. It was, just, it was just like we had a lot of laughs and stuff, and there's nothing more fun than VoucherCon for me. I, I, I try to do my best every year to show up to that get-together. It's just uh, it's like a weekend of hanging out with like-minded uh ne'er-do-wells like myself <laughs> there's definitely a feeling of being amongst your tribe when you go to that that's for sure yeah it, and and as you know you, know, you get together whether it be a local north bar or whatever but it inspires you when you're around other writers and you're kind of like yeah yeah i gotta i gotta get busy on that or you get you get ideas that's for sure definitely i i love it you you had some interesting uh things go on that that i think people would love to hear about and I'm not really sure where to start. Maybe maybe we could start at your film background. Uh, I thought that was an interesting piece. I came to writing fiction from uh, film first. So film was always my uh, passion very much. Uh, through high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. At the time, I thought I'd be a cinematographer. And then I was fortunate enough to be part of the Sundance Institute right when it had first started back in the uh, 80s. 
and uh, and I went as a crew member, and I said, you know, I like the idea of telling the stories, not just lensing them, not just lighting them. And I'm like, I, and working with these actors seems like fun too. So I kind of jumped tracks from the cinematographer uh, kind of idea to more of a writer director, and that was my pursuit. And I went to graduate film school at Columbia, which was a great time to be there. This was the late '80s in New York City. Worked for the New York City Department of Transportation, making training films. I think I think you and I talked about that some. Very compelling plots on those films. <laughs> yeah, it is. Towing a car is very dramatic, I can tell you, uh, especially in New York City. Uh, so I did that, and then uh, it was a, a great time. And then I uh, came out here to Los Angeles and uh, st- was writing scripts. Of course, that's what you do, and and you you know you write and you uh, try to get one going. And it happened to be in a time when there was a blockbuster uh, video on every other corner. And mm-hmm. so because of that, there was a, a need for these kind of what you'd call back then straight-to-video movies, you know, these lower-budget films that didn't necessarily get a theatrical release. But there's de- definitely was a market, especially in the, overseas as well, and that was kind of blowing up. So I, I was working as an editor, and it was a skill I had as well. And uh, uh, from what I was, I was actually doing as an editor out at the ad at Sundance and uh, I got to go with my buddy and said, Hey, let's, let's write a script that like Roger Corman would do, you know, and I had edited a movie for Roger Corman. So I kind of knew a couple people over there. Which so one did we, you edit? Uh, I edited a movie called body waves, which is like a, his attempt at trying to do is he's, he's just, it's funny in a way is kind of ahead of the game. You know, these were these kind of, well, at the time back in the eighties were these kind of teen comedies, you know, these nerdy guys trying to get girls, kind of one of those movies. And yeah. Roger wasn't necessarily known for a lot of comedies either because, you know, like, like comedy, that kind of stuff doesn't necessarily sell overseas like in Europe because, you know, uh, you know the, everyone's got a different – unless it's physical humor constantly yeah. uh, in Charlie Chaplin or, or a lot mm-hmm. of Pratt Falls, it's not – it doesn't really translate. But uh, yeah. And then a friend of mine was directing and he hired me on to edit and that was cool. And I thought, I can, I'm going to write one of these scripts. So so uh, a, a buddy of mine uh, who I initially met at Sundance, Steve Jankowski, and I, he, he said, hey, let, let's write uh, this one of these movies that Corman made. And we wrote, it was, the title was Teenage Bonnie and Klepto Clyde. It was a, a modernized Bonnie and Clyde story. And it's the basic premise, the, you know, two, lo- two young lovers on in a crime spree and uh and i and so we got i got we were fortunate had that around showed it to a few people and then the all the roger corman's people didn't pursue it uh another notorious producer menachem golan who had <laughs> golan and globus <laughs> yeah, that's right he had made a lot yeah. of the missing in action pictures yeah, and all the chuck norris Bert, movies chuck norris movies and he was very prolific and uh was he was no longer running canon he had a company at the time called 21st century and uh and he brought us in and and uh, we just started making that movie, and then made, uh, and then, and that was our my first four way into 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 the, uh, being a writer director, co writer director, and my buddy produced it, and very proud of that little movie, and shot it in Salt Lake City, and brought in a lot of our trusted collaborators, some of which I still work with today, uh, many of them which I still work with today, and it was great. It was then that was. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot of fun, but uh, um, but anyway, so so there I was writing scripts and stuff in Hollywood, trying to get the next one going, trying to get another one going, and it's a very you know anyone can tell you it's it's just, it's like you're just beating your head against the wall, and but I always had these stories, you know, I'm, I kind of like want to write something about this. I don't know if it's a full script, so I started writing short fiction, short crime fiction, because that's really the, what I read. I don't I didn't really read anything other than crime fiction. 
was a really loved the the vintage stuff uh, as well. You know, the the Jim Thompson and the old paperbacks and the and the uh, and and James M. Kane, of course, was my all time favorite of the uh, founding fathers of noir. But but I uh, um so I so I started writing some short fiction, and then I was I actually was pleasantly surprised because I had you know got the first I got one published, and then you know and then eventually, which uh, a lot of people tell me was um, an incredible uh, stroke of luck, but uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine accepted. Uh, a story and I was very excited because I had read that I had read those from you know when I was in junior high I remember those and so it was a big honor for me and I wrote a uh, private eye short story and uh, and then I was talking to an author here uh, uh, I think it was Gary Phillips actually and I told him uh, here in LA and I uh, said hey I said Gary I got this sh- short story um, in Alfred Hitchcock and he goes oh well maybe you should consider going to BoucherCon and I'm like, well, yeah, tell me about it. So he told me, he goes, he goes, you know, that may not happen for another decade. <laughs> he goes, so, you know, it's okay. It's kind of a lot. I'm like, oh, okay, well, gee. So I looked into it and, uh, and then uh, attended my first BoucherCon and met uh, Linda Landrigan, the, uh, the editor of Alfred Hitchcock, which was fantastic. And then, of course, but I also met a lot of other people. I, I met my, uh, one of my hero authors, uh, Steve Hamilton. And that was really neat, and uh, and then I met uh, Cor- uh, the the great Bob Randizi was there, and because mm-hmm. I'd gone to the Private Eye Writers of America banquet, and uh, and then uh, so I thought I was like, wow, this is really neat, and that kind of then I really started to take the stuff more seriously, uh, right? The the fiction, the crime fiction writing. So I started working on uh, a sequel to that and uh, a follow up short story. Not much longer later, I was uh, I was surprised to learn that it. Uh, was nominated for the uh, Seamus Award when I, I said, "Oh, I couldn't believe how cool that was." So then I was, then I was off to Albany the next BoucherCon for uh, the the following year. And then I'm sitting there and I'm thinking they're going to give this to Jeffrey Deaver uh, right before they called my name. So <laughs> right out of the <laughs> gate, <laughs> I won I won the short story for the the Seamus for the short story and Alfred Hitchcock. And after that, then I okay now I really have to take this stuff. So seriously, so. <laughs> so, well, that, that's a pretty but, big uh, honor. The Seamus is a, a huge award. What was the name of the story? That's called Ghost Negligence. There's three in that series that have been published in Alfred Hitchcock uh, to date. Uh, the first is Ghost Negligence. The second is uh, Of Dogs and Deceit. And the last one is Electric Boogaloo, which is actually a, kind of a, it's a title of a Menachem Golan movie of all things. Mm-hmm. But, but anyways, the... Uh, so that's my character, Jack O'Shea. He's a he's a he's a he's a former con man who now uh, roots out deception uh, as a private eye. And then I'm currently working on uh, no- novelizing uh, that character into my next book. That's a nice progression then, with because you've got all this backstory already that's out there in the world, and somebody enjoys the book. They've got the short stories they can go check out. Yeah, I, and I you know I was uh, I was hemming and hawing like, what should I go? What I got? I got I got I should novelize this. And then again, you know, it's talking to other authors that encourage and one had read them. It's like, you really should because you know that character. You You know, a lot of authors think about, oh, it would be great if somebody made a movie or or a TV show out of something I've written. Uh, So it's pretty exciting that you've done it. Uh, I wonder if real quick we could run through. I've got the titles here queued up on my screen. Uh, Jersey Shore Shark Attack, which is a B-movie title if ever there was one. Um, And but there's some. 
really well-known people in there. Paul Servino and, and Tony Cericcio from Goodfellas are in it. And, and Jack Scalia, he's a, he was a pretty big name in his time. Yeah, Jack. And Jack, uh, he was great to work with. So, so in that picture, what happened is I had made a, a previous picture for Sci-Fi Channel called Chupacabra Terror. Actually, I I co-written that with the with the, my collaborator Steve Jankowski, who uh, we did our first film together. I mentioned earlier, so we did that picture, which opened the door for our our producers to 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 make a lot of pictures for Sci-Fi Channel. And at the time, they were making these, you know, these kind of I used to call them Saturday night matinees. They're like matinee horror kind of adventure films, and you play them straight life or death. But really, they're kind of comedies. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. they're kind of over. They're kind of ridiculous in a way. In our case, it, uh, that in in uh, Chupacabra Terror, it's a it's a it's a Chupacabra on a on a cruise ship that's terrorizing all these all these people. So anyway, so they uh, years later, the script was already written. They 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 were they were it was out to uh, some directors, and they're looking into availability. And my name came up, and someone over at Sci Fi Channel said, "Yeah, we like Chupacabra Terror." So I got the job, and and uh, and we shot Jersey Shore Shark Attack of all places in Redondo Beach, California. Now we did shoot a lot of B roll <laughs> in the actual Jersey Shore, but the actual film was shot, you know, in sixteen days. Redondo Beach has an area that. That it has a, a lot of the architecture is is kind of Victorian in a way. It was kind of made to look older. So I'm like, hey, this could work for back east. This could work in and around the uh, marina over there. We shot that and had a great cast, as you as you said, a great young cast. I think some of my favorite scenes are, you know, there's a there's the three main guys and the three main girls that mimic the Jersey Shore television show um, characters and. Uh, and there's there's a in the second act there's like three scenes with that with the three of them like trying to trying to like deal with this crisis of sharks attacking their <laughs> their favorite beach, and it's and, and it's funny and it's just it's just it just really works well. It's just uh, it was it was that was a great experience. So we, that that movie came out, Jersey Shore Shark Attack, and then the next year, the next summer, they needed another shark movie, and that was Sharknado. So. so <laughs> I was the I was the prelude to Sharknado with Jersey Shore Shark Attack. Ahead of your time. Yeah, well, they like they had to have a shark movie. I mean, they knew that was a, a very vibrant genre. So, uh. <laughs> well, another genre that you seem to have tapped into uh, film wise is the Christmas genre, Christmas movies. Uh, there's one here called "I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus." B movie maybe I don't know but I mean Connie Selica and Corbin Burnson are the stars and those are some pretty big names at uh, one time. Well, yeah, and they were again great actors to work with. So what happened that it was one of the very first of the television Christmas films that have become now you know we're, we're flooded with them. This came together as uh, my producer had said you know these Christmas films for television have long legs they play for many years so he had uh, uh, put that project together and we came on um, me, again me and my partner Steve Jankowski who produced it was a it was solid but it was written as a, a big 80 million dollar theatrical picture and we knew we would have you know you know much less but we we, we kept the core the same and the characters in place and we kind of scaled it back and very much played up what's in the title very much the irony the dramatic irony of of uh, you know the characters, the audience knowing more than the characters in this case. So everything kind of fell into place on that one. It was we went and shot all the Christmas stuff while it was up, then came back uh, 
three, four weeks later in January and then shot the film proper. We, we got the snow, we got the, everything, everything worked out really well on that. And, and it's, I'm actually out of all my films, that's, that's probably my favorite film. And it was a, it was a, at the time it was PAX network, which is now called ION. But at the time they were, uh, they were a actual broadcast entity, put it out and, um, it was their highest rated picture when it came out. And then ABC Family said, hey, we like that because it's got the Sprouse twins in it. The previous credit was uh, Big Daddy, but they would go on to do Disney's uh, uh, Zack and Cody sitcom. And so it worked well because uh, I could work one kid six hours and swap them out for the next twin. And you'd never know. I had hard. These kids look so close at that age that you never know who was who. They would fool us too. They would call them, uh, themselves a brother's name, but anyways, we so then we shot that and uh, and it turned out quite well. And then that and that led to the next one, the Santa Trap, uh, which Corbin is also in. But we uh, had Shelley Long in that picture and and Robert Hayes and and uh, Stacy Keach, uh, and that was uh, and, and and Dick Van Patten playing Santa Claus. So that was that was a that was another one and that was so i did two the, two of these christmas films back to back which were very much family films you know they're about a family going through the christmas adventure but you look at these ones now and i'm telling you frank they're all these like romantic comedies about some about some city girl who goes to the country or vice versa and you know and then there's the you know and, and they're just not they don't really interest me they're they're all the same movie <laughs> they're all the same romantic comedy anymore these television christmas films and and they've kind of taken the the family dynamic out of it, and I think it's kind of a shame. Um, but then, you know, that's Hallmark and Lifetime. That's what they've been doing. So, uh, the only other one I see here that we haven't talked about yet is you did one called Snowboard Academy with uh, Jim Varney, the Vern character. Yeah, Vern is the off-screen character. Uh, it's right. actually Ernest. You know what I mean, Vern? Uh, yeah, er, like Ernest saves Christmas. Ernest. Uh huh. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, Jim was great. So, so that that picture came together. It was going to be done in Canada, and uh, Columbia TriStar Home Video had the idea that uh, let's do a uh, um, a snowboard film because there really hadn't been a there's no there wasn't a snowboard film uh, re- other than you know the nonfiction ones, the crazy guys, and you know, but there wasn't really a film. There were there were ski movies, but they tend to be R rated, kind of these films like Hot Dog, and they were. They were, you know, they were just kind of these, you know, hot tub, hot, you know, kind of movies. But the, uh, but, but they said, let's make a PG snowboard film for home video. I thought that was a great idea. So, um, so I was hired. I didn't write that script, but I was hired to direct. Went up to Montreal and, uh, and shot that in, up in Canada. Uh, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. Jim and I were the only really Americans on that film. We had to fulfill Canadian content. Everyone else was, um, either Canadian or European. We had Bridget Nielsen and we had, uh, you know, we, Corey Hain was technically Canadian in there. And, uh, um, and then uh, the great Joe Flaherty. So it, it was, it was fun. It was, it was a, it was a adventure. I grew up in Colorado, so I knew how to ski. So it's, it's the only film in which, you know, half of my work was done in ski boots. So it was, it was, uh, <laughs> it worked pretty well. Well, you've had an illustrious film career so far, I would say. Yeah. I've made a lot of these films. You know, unfortunately, Frank, I never got, I never kicked it up beyond kind of the, you know, these smaller films that never really kicked me up to the uh, the theatrical film world. But uh, but no regrets. I would I would think not. I mean, you, you, I remember growing up as a kid being interested in being 
a, a writer director being a huge movie buff and you know your 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 credits here i'd i'd kill for him i don't know who i'd kill but i'd kill somebody <laughs> you know uh, we'll get back to talking to John in just a moment, but uh, this is the time in the show where we talk to experts, and by experts, I do mean authors, super readers, bookstore owners, uh, people who have a knowledgeable opinion to offer on uh, what books would be great for you to be reading, and so we're going to hear from some of those right now. Hiya, this is Katrina McPherson. I'm the author of most recently Strangers at the Gate and I've got two recommendations for you. One a classic and one brand new, new to me. Uh, Day before yesterday I turned the last page on a book called The Arrangement by Robin Harding. It's domestic noir. It's about a sugar daddy and a sugar baby and the uh, inevitable but still astonishing mess that people get into when they think that love can be turned into a monetary exchange. It's uh, it made me gasp out loud. It's it's tremendous. Oh, it's a one one sitting read. My classic recommendation is a book called Appleby's End by Michael Innes. He's one of the golden age writers who was writing in Britain between the wars, um, and it is a story about Inspector Appleby and the case where he meets his wife Judith. It is so bizarre. It's like it's like taking acid while you've got flu and then reading a golden age detective novel. It's completely bonkers. It's like Agatha Christie, but if she was a little bit David Lynch. I love it. It's outrageous and jaw-droppingly ridiculous. And not enough people have read it. I hardly ever get to have conversations about it. But that's my recommendation. Appleby's End by Michael Innes and The Arrangement by Robin Harding. Hi, this is Terry Shames. I'm the author of the Samuel Craddock series, the latest of which is a risky undertaking for Loretta Singletary. And I just want to talk to you about a book I'm reading now by Stephen Cooper. He is, he, this is his third book and I absolutely love them. And it's, it's features a cop and a psychic, his series does. And the psychic is not necessarily excited about being a psychic. The most recent one is called Valley of Shadows. And I'm about a third of the way through and I'm just loving it. I can hardly put it down. So that's my recommendation. Well, there you are, folks. Some great recommendations to consider. I'd like to add uh, one of my own. I just finished a, a Charles Salzberg's uh, first Henry Swan book, uh, Swan Song, and uh, it was uh, very good and I highly recommend it. I'm reading about three books at once right now, thanks to uh, Kindle Audio and the library uh, and my haul from BoucherCon. So I will have some more recommendations for certain uh, next month. Now let's get back to talking to John. Now you're you're focused more on your, your writing career, and I'd, I'd like to turn to that. In addition to the, the Seamus Award-winning Jack O'Shea series, of short stories that you're novelizing. You had a series uh, called The Shill. 
a while That's right. back. What, 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 that sounds kind of like it might be grifter con related as well. Very much so. So that was being, of course, interested in con and the deception, art of deception, I should say. I had this idea that I wanted to tell a story of a actress, a struggling actress. I'd, I'd known and you know, dated a couple of them uh, over the years and, and it, who was who was really kind of down and out. And then and then uh, she falls for this con man meets this guy in her acting class and uh, they hit it off. And and then he kind of dumps her and and she's wondering what's going on. Finally, she confronts him and, and he says, well, look, I'm really not I'm, I'm not studying to be an actor. I'm searching these acting classes for someone to play my wife. I'm a con man. I need someone to play the part of my wife uh, in a scheme. You know, <laughs> she said at that point, no, no, I, I'm not interested in walking away. Then we, we wouldn't have a series. But she, but the, she justifies it. She's an actress. She's like, well, it may be wrong. It may be doing something illegal, but it's a part. I could play that part. She sees it. That's how she justifies it. Mm-hmm. So Jane Innes is my uh, uh, the title character there for, for the shill. And so she ends up, it's kind of a Pygmalion in a way. She ends up uh, learning the ropes from this con man and and he trains her how to become who, who, who to impersonate this rich and carefree heiress and because the only way to get to the mark is through his wife so her job while while they're staying at this luxury hotel here in la um is to it, it befriend the wife uh and then set up a dinner with the four of them so so uh so the con man can plant the seed so that's that's the beginning that's of course things things escalate from there but but that's the shill trilogy and there's three novellas in that series uh the shill kill the shill and beware the shill and those are with down and out books yeah and those are with down and out and then they're they're also all combined in an audiobook form so the entire you can you can get the entire book combined and then also in audio who narrates that so kara o'brien a friend of mine who's a voice artist out here uh recommend or helped me and she did a um we did a little audition and i got about 10 12 auditions and kara is a really talented art she sings jazz and stuff and does musical theater uh she lives in richmond virginia but she's got a home studio and does a lot of stuff really good voice artist and uh turned out she did a fantastic job with it and uh i actually uh produced another audiobook and 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 uh, collaborated with her on it uh um, just last year, but she uh, she was great. She you know, and I almost think the audio in a way, because here I am a male writing a female character, and so I mean, you know, you know that's some guys can really do that, but you know I don't know the nuances and all the. I'm just because I'm a guy, right? But but she, but in the audio, she added a lot of that, and and uh, she added that those those subtleties that that really I think makes the perspective the the uh, the point of view. Um, from that, from the main character, kind of, kind of genuine. You, you didn't stop with the shill, though. You, your most recent book uh, is called Bottom Feeders, and that's from uh, Blackstone, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, and that's been out like a year or so. I mean, uh, I, I got a copy of it from you at BoucherCon in in Saint Petersburg, so it's been out at least a year. Yeah, it came out uh, in May of last year. Um, it had been out a couple of months, a handful of months, the summer before I gave it to you. Um, so I had finished the Shill trilogy, and I, I figured out what I wanted to do next. And and for, for me, I was like, hmm, I'd, I'd like to try a, who, a whodunit, like a classic whodunit. 
And so one world I really knew was low-budget filmmaking, having come up through that. So I'm like, what if there was a killer on a low-budget movie, you know, knocking people off in, in a whodunit setting? And I thought, well, how would I do that? So I started writing Bottom Feeders. Now, now what the title refers to is there's a certain level of, of crew, craftspeople, uh, uh, even actors that work on these low-budget movies and never kick it up. You know, they never kind of enter the, the world of legitimate stuff. You know, they're kind of their resume in a way kind of weighs them down because they've done so many of these, and people in the world, you know, put them in, stigmatize them, or pigeonhole them into this world of just low budget. And that's what bottom feeders refers to. They're the people that will take those crummy little jobs that pay a flat rate and. And never really for stuff hardly when anyone's ever heard of, and that's uh, that's the world of bottom feeders. And I dedicate it to all the hardworking craftspeople that are that have trudged through these trenches. And the setup for that is a low budget film on a tight schedule in a remote location. That's right. It's a, in this case, it's a western. There's a western set up in uh, up in Angeles Crest mountains here uh, outside los angeles uh, a couple hours away and they're uh, they're trying to do the impossible shoot uh, shoot a movie uh with a very tight schedule with a kind of a prima donna lead and and uh all the other complications uh even before uh, someone starts uh, killing them one by one with a high-powered hunting bow so uh death comes uh silent as uh, as arrows pierce our people uh, it's uh, uh, and I and I had fun with it in a way because because I uh, chapters are told from different points of view. So I have the the director who's brought in at the last minute. I have I have the assistant camera person, uh, a woman who's trying to navigate her way into a career, and and then I have a I have a character actor who uh, who teaches on the side, and uh, and then I and then I have a, a deputy, a woman who's a, a in the San Bernardino uh, Sheriff's Department, who's who's trying to figure out what's going on. So I guess so it was fun. I was to tell as, as well to tell the story from these different kind of points of views, and then bring them down into this pot boiler of of suspense at the end. Yeah, I, I've been reading it. I haven't finished it yet, but I'll tell you, it, it was interesting because I didn't really pay attention to the jacket copy so much as just dove right into it. And, you know, the beginning with the director and how he gets the job and everything is pretty straightforward. And it's interesting. It's inside baseball that, you know, a lot of us don't get to experience. So I, I really dug that. But then when you, when the first scene comes along where the bow and arrow become a factor, I, w- I was actually surprised by what happened. And, and I don't get taken by surprise very often in these kinds of books. Uh, but uh, I didn't expect what happened to happen when it happened so uh, <laughs> if that's vague enough <laughs> no that is yeah uh well yeah i mean that's the fun that's why i like crime fiction is because there's surprises you know there's you lead you lead the reader uh, uh along and and then and then ooh, that's not that's an unexpected thing and that's a part of the reason i've i've always liked the art of deception stuff because there's just chock full of twists we got a few of them in the uh, the shield trilogy there so it just it's just fun you know if you can if you can kind of figure out how to throw a curveball at your reader mm-hmm. once in a while i think it keeps mm-hmm. it interesting now bottom feeders uh, has been produced in audio as well and i was uh, surprised to see a pretty high profile uh, narrator yeah bronson pincho who uh, a lot of people will remember from the 
the sitcom Perfect Strangers. That's funny because when yeah. I think of him, I think of True Romance. <laughs> yeah, of course, True Romance. He's in a lot of, he's a, you know, and the one thing if you think about Bronson is, you know, he started his career, you know, he, he always played that kind of, he had these characters, uh, I know, with uh, well, certainly with Perfect Strangers, he was kind of this nebulous Eastern European kind of, you don't know quite what, <laughs> where he's from. He kind of, some so Greekish he, country. Greekish, exactly, or Greekish, yeah. <laughs> He had this some kind of like play that you know we would play those voices you know and uh, and then I know later in his career he's like I'm not taking any more of those roles because that's what all, he wanted to uh, get away from that but uh, but he has become quite the star in the audiobook world and I was really really fortunate to have him do it not only does he kind of know the inside of inside baseball uh, of of uh, low budget and and and, and filmmaking but. Um, but he's just so talented. I, I had heard him initially on Catherine Ryan Howard's Distress Signals, which is a really fantastic debut novel. Uh, Catherine just ended up, uh, she got nominated for the Edgar, for Liar's Girl last year. And then she's got she's got a new one called Rewind, which is quite good, too. I'm a big fan of, of her work. And uh, but anyway, so in, in that and I, of course, I love my audiobooks, So I, I was like, man, is Bronson good? And this was and this was done by Blackstone. So when it came down to we started talking about the audiobook when uh, with Blackstone Publishing, I said, you know, who I really want is Bronson Pinchot. And they're like, well, okay, we'll see. And and uh, and he just did a great job with it. He just just cracks me up uh, in in many, in many parts because he he definitely had what he brings to it too. And the, and the audio audio is interesting because. Some authors don't like it at all because it's it veers from what maybe their intention. Maybe this character's voice is not how they saw him in their head. And I always think of it as like it's like jazz in a way. You know, someone has written the melody, someone has written a song, and then someone takes it and inter- interprets maybe a little different, but the core is still there. And um, if you're um, still playing uh, a B chord. It might be a B seven. Yeah, exactly. They interpret it a certain way. And there are certain character choices he made, like with their voice and stuff. I didn't even thought of, but but they made sense. They made, completely made sense. But but uh, yeah, he he makes it a lot of fun because he's he's quite the talent. Uh, I think Audible uh, uh, had had deemed him a narrator of the year one one year not really? long ago. So yeah, wow. he's he's a he's a star in that world. He's quite wow. good. He was, uh, I'm sitting here thinking about, it. I think he was in Risky Business way back when with Tom Cruise. He was. And he was in Courage Under Fire, and he was—he's he's oh, been yeah, in a lot of big yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, a—you t- know—my <clears throat> uh, wife and I were talking about this. There is a skill involved. It's kind of a new thing in a way. I mean, this was this was, of course, been—you know—people been, yeah, and the, the tradition of uh, na- na- narration and all that has been around a long time. But with the with the advent of the technology of uh, you know we can put these things in our phone and we can listen to them in our cars and walking the dog and with the earbuds and uh, whatever. It's a new art form in a way. I mean, it's been around forever, but it's a rejuvenated art form. And, yeah. and these performers who can, like we said, interpret and bring character and bring nuances and and really and and you know, there, it's also no surprise that suspense and mystery are the um, most popular in the audiobook world. APA, uh, Audiobook uh, Professional Association, I believe they're called, puts out a thing every year. A little, uh, a little like status of the industry, crime and mystery, and suspense have always had always always lead the lead the pack uh, over any other genre um, in audio. So people like it. They like to 
they like that you know the the subtlety mm-hmm. the voice uh, it's, it it yeah. fits it fits our beloved uh, genre quite well yeah i think it translates well to to audio for sure film film too it's a very yeah. malleable uh, genre um you you said that you know that audiobook has kind of had a uh, renewing and, and has become rejuvenated, you know, this te- because of the technology that that it can be delivered on. Um, that's a nice segue to the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is this cool idea I saw you writing about this Lyle Keen project. Um, well, could, why don't you tell listeners what that's about? So I've um, I contributed. Uh, at the very launch of a uh, of an app called Hooked, it's a, a flash fiction app. Um, I had contributed and got to know the initial startup people who were doing this uh, just through answering an ad. I think I found the, I found them, and we ended up speaking on the phone. And I'd written a couple one-offs, little shorts for them. And what these are is they're short stories told through text messages. And as a as a viewer, you or I should say a reader, you you you, you intercept these. You, you click through these things as if two people are texting each other. So it's really all dialogue. You have to think of a mm-hmm. short story that's entirely dialogue. Uh, uh, that's what what these would be. And so it's an app that uh, that uh, um, people download, and then there's a whole library of um, of these things. You can pick whatever genre. They have romance, and they have horror, and they have crime and mystery, and and uh, uh, science fiction, and and then engage into these, you know, pick a story and then it's a, uh, engage in these little stories. It's, it's a subscription-based thing. And so initially, uh, I did a couple of uh, one-off short stories, but then I told them, I said, you know, I'd really be interested in the series because I think it's I think this thing could really work. And so initially, uh, we uh, I pitched them something called I Private Eye. So the story is of a of a woman in her in her mid twenties, she's uh, her father was a um, a private eye, kind of an old gum gumshoe private eye, and uh, he, uh, and uh, on his deathbed, as he passed away, he asked her, his only daughter, uh, and uh, last really, she, and he's uh, they had lost their mother years before her mother years before, and and uh, said, please don't don't close the family business. So um, so she has this guilt. She said, what's she going to do with all these? dusty file cabinets in this in this brick and mortar so she ends up getting rid of that in very modern kind of commerce way she opens up private eye agency digitally so people pay her through paypal and she handles cases through that and so and so that's i private eye and so with her on and off again boyfriend uh, mike uh the two of them uh solve these cases and so a, a season is a case I did three seasons. I did three seasons, which tend to be five to ten of these episodes of I Private Eye um, for Hooked, and inserted uh, pictures as well. So, because she would take a picture, for example, as evidence and send it to her um, to her client, uh, and they'd respond about it or what have you. It was a lot of fun to do. It was kind of this new format. It was great mm-hmm. to be part of the launch of it, and uh, uh, and then. And then they asked, hey, would you like to do a procedural, um, the editor? And I'm like, well, um, sure. So we, we, I pitched a few things, and I, I came up on, the, on this, my, my latest, and I just had delivered season two, of Lyle Keene. And Lyle Keene is, he's a character who, um, he suffers from a hyper-empathy syndrome, and this is a real thing. So it's a, 
it's people who who really pick up on people's emotion. They they uh, if someone is really sad and and they become sad as well. If someone they really they're very t- tuned in, just you know, this God given kind of gift in a way of, of people's emotion and and because of that these be the people who they're very good at telling if someone is lying they're they're very very good uh, at that it just comes natural because they they're so kind of tuned into their emotions so in the case of lyle he's the youngest member of the uh, los angeles sheriff's department homicide division and uh, they use him for death notification and if they suspect maybe there's uh, some foul play within the family or something they'll send him in to kind of get a gauge what's going on um and as he and he hates it because he here he is he's, he hates this, this he's got to go mm-hmm. in and, and tell people the worst news ever and then he, of course mm-hmm. it kills him every time because you know these people's emotions of course they're there and then he you know it hurts him just as much so it, it really doesn't matter what kind of response he gets it's going to be painful i mean if it's if they if they're innocent he's going to feel the pain of grief and if they did it he's going to you know feel the the human depths of that them being a murderer i mean that just that it sucks no matter what for him it does it's a, it's not a good thing so that's the character lyle keen is a lot of fun so i just uh we just turned in season two and uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll be building out a, a third season of that. But yeah, so that was fun, and, uh, and it's it's exciting to have been part of the uh, the hooked uh, app from the from the from the get go from the beginning. And, and that's pretty uh, cool. That's that's a neat way of telling stories. It's, I mean, storytelling's been around since campfires and in speech, right? But uh, every time there's a change in technology, that it's interesting how we find a way as a people to use that technology as a different way to tell stories. Yeah. What's next? The uh, Jack O'Shea novel? Is that uh, what's in the pipeline for you? That is, and that's what I've been working on. Uh, you know how long these things take, but we're... Uh, I got, they take as long as they take. <laughs> they take as long as they take. <laughs> I have to... This one's... I've been, I've been uh, distracted by a lot of things with a day job and other things and a lot of stuff going on, but I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm back into getting close to getting that thing out the door, so... Well, I'll look forward to that. Uh, in the meantime, I'm really enjoying uh, Bottom Feeders, and uh, and the biggest decision I have now is whether to keep reading it or to uh, get a hold of the audiobook and and uh, listen to it. So that's going to be the challenge I'm facing in uh, the next few days here. Yeah, well, I hope you enjoy it. It's it was certainly fun to write. I you know I had a lot of fun writing it, and and it was fun to celebrate a part of filmmaking. I should say television filmmaking that that people don't know about. I mean, everyone you think right. about a lot of yeah. what's been written about Hollywood is either vintage, you know, back the old MGM mm-hmm. days or something, mm-hmm. or it's all about limos and personal mm-hmm. assistants and you know, yeah. big stars and all of that. It's like no, these are these are these are workmen like people that struggle long days on these thing on this basically you know this 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 thing all this content. And it's uh, you know all the craftspeople that 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 put their lives and it's you know the, it's quite the sacrifice to work in the mm-hmm. film and television business. It's you sacrifice a lot of time away from family. A lot there's often travel involved. It's you know I I, I say that everyone who does it has got a little crazy streak in them. A little nut. They're a little. We're all a little nutty. All of us. We're all, we're all we're, <laughs> in a way we're kind of carnies, I guess. But uh, uh, but yeah. So there is an 
And I just wanted to celebrate. You know, I was like, yeah, let's let's mm-hmm. let's set up a world. Let's set up a world that this is the world I know. I mean, I'm not, you know, I there was there's never been any uh, limos, personal assistants, or you know, personal trainers and any on any of my sets. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But still, yeah. a great deal of talent, I imagine. I mean, uh, I, I I think about it in terms. I'm, I'm a huge hockey fan, so I think about a lot of things in terms of hockey, but. You know, I mean, uh, you know, people will talk about a, you know, a, a guy that's just a fringe player and has barely made it into the league, or maybe, you know, is just at the minor league level and barely scratches out a f- cup of coffee in the pros. And, you know, that's fine. You're talking about the pro level, but at the same time, you know, that guy is one of the 800 best hockey players in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. here, you, here you have people that are making, oh, that's just a B movie or that's just a TV made for TV movie. Uh, people might be dis- dismissive about it at first, but if you take about two seconds and stop and think about it, the talent level that goes into the, the, the writing, the acting, the production, all of the, the craft that you're describing, you know, the gaffer, the lighting, the, you know, the cinematography, the makeup, the wardrobe, all of it. Uh, these are still professionals who are at the top of their game, who are in the top tier of the world. No, you're right. And um, I have to say the best part, there's, there's a lot of great parts about, about the experience of doing the work. Uh, it's what kind of draws, draws me back, I guess. And the, the, just the collaboration with some really greats, uh, you know, both in front and behind the camera. I have, I, I've learned a lot from a lot of great actors. Uh, I was fortunate in my Chupacabra film, we had Giancarlo Esposito along, uh, long before he did Breaking Bad as Gus. And I learned a lot from him. His subtlety had, it's like, gee, you know, this guy, this guy does so little, but so much, he's so subtle, he's so, he's so brilliant. Of course, I, I mean, I just, all the actors and from Stacy Keach, uh, who's an incredible career, um, played uh, my camera, played my camera. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, he also voices, uh, uh some of the, my camera audiobooks as well. I, you know, Shelley Long was incredible. You, you'd mentioned, uh, both Corbin Burns and Connie Selica. Just fantastic. Uh, Will, Will Atherton, I mean, he was on Sugarland Express. I mean, he, that was his first big break, you know, the, the Steven Spielberg movie uh, with Goldie Hawn. I mean, he, I mean, he's been around. He's, he's always been so good. I mean, these great, these great character actors, these great performers, just, it's so cool. It's so cool to get in and mm-hmm. see their ideas and try stuff out and, and, you know, of course, you never have enough time, and you got to move on, and you—it's just—it's just great. It's just a—I live for it. Well, I am certainly uh, impressed and envious, and uh, uh, I really enjoyed our time here, John. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Frank. And you know, I didn't—I I went back when you told me about your podcast and listened to a few of them. These are great. <laughs> Keep it oh, up. Well, thank you. These are thank fantastic. You. So. Well, thanks for making them even better. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> Well, there it is. Some very interesting stories from a very cool guy. I got to see John at BoucherCon after we had recorded this, actually, and it's uh, always great to run into him. He's a super nice guy and uh, has had some really interesting experiences, and his book, Bottom Feeders, is definitely worth reading. Now, I haven't finished it yet. It's uh, on my nightstand getting the uh, rotational read, Uh, but what I've read so far uh, is great. You should pick it up. 
Uh, next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime, we're going to talk to award-winning novelist Lou Burney. Uh, Lou is a super nice guy and has written a tremendous book in November Road, which uh, uh, is fresh off of uh, winning the Anthony Award for 2019 for Best Novel. Uh, had a great conversation with him, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. So that is next episode on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Uh, I'd like to say thanks uh, to John for being on the show, for Lance and the folks at Down and Out Books for being great sponsors, all of the book recommenders, and most especially you, the listener, because just like you, the reader, there would be very little, if any, purpose to doing this if you weren't there. So thank you. I, I sincerely appreciate it. Lou Bernie next week. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>